We are reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning, just a short one. We've uh, sort of done Romans 12 a little bit backwards. All right, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. And as always, you can follow the notes in on uh, the church app if you want to. So many of us uh, who were born in the early to mid 20th century, not, well, it's probably pretty obvious which part of that was me, but don't want to confess up all the same. Our world and worldview uh, was really shaped by Christianity. It was often a distorted form of Christianity, but in many ways we could say we lived in a Christian culture. If you're under 30, you may not realise just how far culture has shifted in the past umpteen years. Uh, And look, some of that shift is actually decidedly good. And in many ways, some of the attitudes that are presented now are in some ways more closely aligned with Christian values, even though they may be coming from a different uh, place. But other uh, values have shifted away from Christian and Christian teaching quite radically. I think one of the good things for the church in this shift is that it sort of forced us to step back and ask ourselves about our relationship with the culture and the values that are expressed there. And uh, some of us are realising some of the values we held in the past, or at least the way we expressed them, weren't always that Christian, really. They they didn't uh, reflect the love of Christ. But we're also looking at some of the values that are arising in, uh, in this cultural transition, this cultural moment, as it's called, and realising, well, they're not really Christian of Christ either. And so the challenge for us as Christians is how we respond to this cultural moment in a truly Christian way. And so Paul begins uh, this chapter. Uh, this is a transitional chapter. He he focuses a lot on theology, if you like, uh, in the first 11 chapters and then moves on to some very practical application in these last few. And it begins with this in view of the mercies of God and everything else that he's going to say makes no sense if we don't have a grip on this idea of the mercies of God. As Christians, we are motivated by the mercy of God, or at least that should be our motivation, And people who don't comprehend the mercy of God or don't believe it often don't understand what motivates us. And so Paul sort of, he says, in view of the mercies of God, he's been talking about the mercies of God for the last 11 chapters, which we haven't covered. So let me summarise. In view of God's mercy that saves us from wrath, in view of God's mercy that justifies us by faith, God's mercy that brings the dead to life. God's mercy that sets us free from slavery to sin. God's mercy that makes us his children by the Spirit. 
God's mercy that gives us resurrection and new creation hope and God's mercy that includes both Jews and Gentiles. That's sort of a very rough overview of what Paul's talked about in the first part of Romans. So Paul says that the proper response to God's mercy is to offer our bodies as a sacrifice to him. Well, what does that mean? Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Of course, it evokes the images of temple sacrifice. Paul was a Jew. But obviously it doesn't mean literal human sacrifice. It's living sacrifice. And practically, of course, being a living sacrifice means serving God, service to God. And in this regard, Paul sometimes uses the language of slavery. In Romans 6, he says that just as we used to be slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness and to God. As uh, Bob Dylan sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, today we see slavery as wholly evil. And, of course, modern uh, expressions of slavery are. There, there is no redeeming feature in modern slave, uh, slavery. But in Paul's day, people had a different view. In fact, in the Roman world, some people would sell themselves into slavery because they saw it as a promotion. Does that blow your mind? In the Old Testament... Slaves, particularly debt slaves, were meant to be released every seven years. Don't know if it ever happened, but that was what was written in the law. But there was a mechanism for a slave to remain indentured to their master, if they so desired. Who would choose to remain indentured as a slave rather than choose freedom? Obviously, there was a different view of slavery, ancient slavery, sometimes meant something different to what it means now. Of course, it could also be very, very evil. But we need to be careful not to read our own understanding and experience into other cultures. So offering ourselves as living sacrifices is an appropriate response to a God who has had such mercy on us. Christ redeemed us at the cost of his own life. So when you think about what greater offering can we make? What other offering at all can we make that's worthy of God? And a God who's given us such mercy. And so in essence, being a living sacrifice, offering ourselves as slaves of God, means we don't live to please ourselves, but to please God. So how do we do that? Well, Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this age. We could just park there for a while. What does this age look like that we're not to be conformed to? Well, of course, there's actually a lot of stuff we could talk about, but I want to focus particularly in this context of sacrifice, worship, pleasing God. In contrast to that, we live in an age and a culture that prizes individualism, autonomy, and pleasing ourselves above all else. And probably in a way that didn't ring in the Roman world in a lot of cultures through history, which have been far more communal and community-minded than we have shaped by uh, 400 years of the Enlightenment. 
Today, it's sort of peaking. You can shape yourself into almost anything you want to be. You can do just about any job that you want, which actually historically is quite something. You used to just be expected to follow in your parents' footsteps. You can marry anyone of any gender, and you can identify as any gender, and perhaps have surgery to modify as well. And identity and sexuality, of course, have particularly become prominent uh, so that even promoting traditional values like chastity, tra tra traditional Christian values like chastity and so on, now seems quaint at best and repressive and uh, dangerous at worst in some people's minds. The same impetus to autonomy that drives uh, these sorts of expressions of identity also drives some fringe movements uh, such as Sovereign citizens or, or the anti-vax movement. Even among some Christians, the question isn't how can I love my neighbour as Jesus taught me, but what are my rights? Now, I know these, all of these issues are far more complicated uh, than that. And it's not to say that everything about the culture is bad. But all the same, it's a massive challenge for us to lift ourselves out of the culture for long enough that we can take an objective look at it as Christians. Maybe we're not really trying to take an objective look at it, we're just trying to look at it from a biblical perspective. You know, they, they ask the question, does a fish know it's wet? When you're immersed in something, you don't necessarily realise that you're immersed in it. Do we know how conformed to this age and this culture we are? And yet it's something we have to figure out. We have to be able to take a step back and reflect on culture and our place in it and our response to it. Because if we are children of God, then we're not children of of this age, and if I had more time this morning, we could expand on that. That's a whole sermon in itself. But it means we are not people who conform our lives to a culture of individualism of this age, but that we conform ourselves to identity in Christ and that we worship God through the sacrifice of our lives. There just is no room for autonomy. We recognise autonomy, in fact, was the original sin. What were Adam and Eve doing in the Garden of Eden? They were saying no to God and yes to self. And we really have to stand guard against that impetus as Christians in a culture that worships that. And so Paul goes on then and he says... Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We resist the culture, we resist the age by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformed lives begin with renewed minds. So how do we renew our minds in such a way that we're no longer... Uh, conform to the pattern of this age, but we have transformed lives. Well, back in Romans 8, 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh 
have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. So transformation is actually a supernatural work of the Spirit. Notice here Paul says, be transformed. He doesn't say transform yourself. The reality is you're actually helpless to transform yourself, regardless of what all the self-help books will tell you. But what you're not helpless here is being involved in the renewal of the mind, which again is a work of the Spirit, but it's something we cooperate in. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, Paul says. And so the question for you and me is, what are we actually setting our minds on? What does this mean practically? It's, what do I watch? What do I read? What do I listen to? And who do I listen to? What is it that I dwell on? Where does my mind go at night when I'm lying in bed? Because those things that I watch, read, listen to, think about, they're what I will become like. Paul says, those who are born of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So apparently we talk a lot about discipleship, being people who follow the life example and teaching of Jesus. And discipleship is transformational, but it's not easy. Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but he also told us to pick up our cross and follow him daily. It means dying daily, which sounds like being a living sacrifice, doesn't it? As part of our discipleship here, of course, we've been emphasising reading the Bible, but that's not actually an end in itself. The goal is to have the Word of God, the Gospel, dwelling within us and transforming us. We need our minds set on the things of the Spirit to be Spirit-filled for this transformation to take place. And Jesus, get it, Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit. In John 7, 38, he cried out, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And John makes a comment. He said this about the Spirit. God wants to give you the Spirit. He wants this transformation to take place in us. But we have to cooperate with the renewal of our minds for this to take place. So Paul says we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices that are pleasing to God. So here's another question is, how can I know what is pleasing to God? People sometimes ask, how can I know the will of God? Well, Paul says that this process of transformation and mind renewal is so that we may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Some Christians will sort of act and argue that there's a lot of ambiguity in the world today, and there is, um, and come with an almost more subjectivist approach to values and ethics and that sort of thing. 
And I'm not saying that we're all going to agree about everything and that it'll remain easy, but it's a lot easier than we sometimes make it out if we're walking in the Spirit, because it's by the Spirit, the renewal of the mind, the transformation, that we're able to discern what God's will is. Now, Paul's going to go on in the next few verses that we've already looked at and talk about some of the things that are God's will. He says, make a sober assessment of yourselves. He talks about serving others. And some of the things that Paul describes in here were actually radically countercultural in his day. For example, in uh, Romans 12, 16, he says, do not be proud, instead associate with the humble. Now, to you and I who may have been uh, immersed in a little bit of Christianity, that's like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the higher they are, the harder they fall, that sort of thing. But actually, in Paul's day, this was radically countercultural. Humility was despised by the Romans and the Greeks, for that matter. Humility was a sign of weakness. Sometimes when we read the Bible, uh, we wonder if, if a passage we're looking at is talking about something that sort of more cultural, you know, and a concession to culture that we can um, just leave out or whether it's actually something that we really need to pay attention to. And one of the tools we use for interpreting the Bible, and we've got to do this carefully, is to judge how cultural or countercultural something was in the Bible. So, for example, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about women wearing head coverings. And I notice that there are no women wearing head coverings today. Masks do not count. And that's because pretty much everyone agrees now, except for uh, a few places in the church, that actually what Paul was talking about was something cultural there because it was just a part of the culture of the day. Now that does remind us that we need to be culturally sensitive, but when we read the Bible, okay, that's probably not. But the flip side of that is that when... Paul or the Bible or any of the Bible writers are expressing something that was countercultural, then it is probably something that we need to take particular atten- uh, pay particular attention to uh, and probably is something that is universal for all time. So, humility. I don't think any Christian argues with the need for that. When the New Testament talks about husbands loving their wives. You know, so Paul says... Wives, love your husbands. If you wanted to follow this, uh, what is actually just a guideline and create a law, then you could say, well, that's just cultural because every um, philosopher talked about wives submitting to their husband. No one, literally no one, talked about husbands loving their wives. It just wasn't a cultural expectation. Paul is being radically countercultural when he says, husbands, love your wives. Wives still need to respect their husbands, mutual respect. When Jesus talks about loving your enemies, that is radically countercultural. And I think it's countercultural in any culture, right? When scripture commands sexual purity, that is countercultural. These things still apply. These things help us judge the spirit of the age, 
in the spirit of the kingdom. When Paul says to not be conformed to this age, he's talking about being countercultural. Being renewed and transformed people means that we are a countercultural people. That we pick up our cross both as an act of worship of God, but also as a consequence of not marching to the beat of the drum of this age, but to the beat of the drum of the kingdom of God. Knowing and doing the will of God is a countercultural act. Now, what this doesn't mean is that we impose our values on other people. And I think this is a mistake that we've made in the church very often. I know it's a mistake I've made uh, very often. We have a view of truth. I happen to think that our view of truth is on the whole right. But nevertheless, we don't get to impose it on everyone else. But what it does mean is that we do have to resist when the world tries to impose its values on us, particularly where they don't uh, match the values of the kingdom of God. We live according to the culture of the kingdom of God and we seek to please him. We are not our own. We are living sacrifices offered up to God. And this is our true worship.